smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about GraphQL. What is it and how does it help solve common API problems? We talked to expert Eve Bocello to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In How to Use MDX Stored Insanity in a Next.js website, Jason Lengstorff demonstrates how MDX gives you the minimalist ergonomics of Markdown with the flexibility of custom components. By combining MDX with Sanity and Next, you can build robust, team-friendly content editing experiences while keeping the pleasant and efficient developer experience of building Jamstack sites with React. Anwani Victory looks at building a conversational natural language processing-enabled chatbot using Google's Dialogflow. The 2019 Capgemini Research Institute's report on the use of chat assistance showed a drastic 76% increase in customer satisfaction from organizations where chat assistants were incorporated into their services. But how does Dialogflow, a product from Google's ecosystem, aid developers in building chat assistants and contribute to this quota? Join Anwani to find out. In Ethical Considerations in UX Research, The Need for Training and Review, Victor Yocco reminds us that although research is an essential part of creating a good user experience, we need to have an awareness of potential ethical issues in research and a systematic review of our research protocols to avoid potential ethical pitfalls. In this article, Victor discusses some areas of ethical considerations for UX practitioners when conducting research and explores potential solutions to preventing research from venturing into unethical territory. Making websites easier to talk to is the subject of an article by Frederick O'Brien. Frederick posits that modern websites aren't inseparable from screens anymore. Between phone assistants, home speakers and screen readers, more and more people are using the web without even looking at it. Join Frederick to find out how our websites can evolve to keep pace. And Suzanne Skacker asks how to design a simple UI when you have a complex solution. Software and apps often solve complex problems for businesses and consumers in the way of sales, marketing, finances, and so on. But offering a product that solves your users' problems isn't enough. If the UI is just as complex as the original problem, user churn is going to be high. Suzanne looks at some tips for designing a simple UI, regardless of your solution's complexity. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She's a software engineer, instructor, author, and co-founder of training and curriculum development company Moon Highway. She's created video content for Egghead.io and LinkedIn Learning and has co-authored the books Learning React and Learning GraphQL for O'Reilly Media. She's also a frequent conference speaker and has presented at conferences including React Rally, GraphQL Summit and OzCon. So we know she's an expert in GraphQL, but did you know she once taught a polar bear to play chess? 
My smashing friends, please welcome Eve Porcello. Hi, Eve. How are you? I'm smashing. As I mentioned there, you're very much uh, an educator in things like JavaScript and React, but I wanted to talk to you today about one of your other specialist areas, GraphQL. Many of us will have heard of GraphQL in some capacity, but might not be completely sure what it is or what it does, and in particular, what sort of problem it solves in the web stack. So set stage for us, if you will. If I'm a, a front-end developer, where does GraphQL slot into the ecosystem and what function does it perform for me? Yeah, GraphQL kind of fits between the front end and the back end. So it's kind of living in the middle between the two and gives a lot of benefits to front end developers and back end developers. Um, if you're a front end developer, you can define all of your front end's uh, data requirements. So if you have a big list of React components, for example, you could write a query and that's going to define all of the fields that you would need to populate the data for that page. Now with uh, the backend piece, it's really all because we can collect a lot of data from a lot of different sources. So we have data in REST APIs and databases and all these different places. And GraphQL provides us this nice little orchestration layer to really um, make sense of the chaos of where all of our data is. So it's uh, really useful for kind of everybody all over the stack. So so it's basically a, an API-based technology, isn't it? It's the It sits between your front end and your back end and provides some sort of API. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly. I think over the, the last sort of decade, the, the sort of gold standard for APIs has been REST. Um, so, you know, if you have a, a, a client-side app and you need to populate it with data from the back end, you would build a, a REST API endpoint and you query that. So where does that model fall down uh, and what might we, you know, when might we need GraphQL to come in and, and solve that for us? Well, the problem that GraphQL really helps us with kind of the, the golden problem that the golden solution, I guess, that GraphQL provides is that um, with REST, we're overfetching a lot of data. So if I have slash users or slash products, that's going to give me back all of the data every time I hit that route. With GraphQL, we can be a little bit pickier about what data we want. So uh, if I only need four fields from an object that has 100, I'm going to be able to really pinpoint those fields and not have to load data into, or load all of that data, I should say, into your device, because that's a lot of extra legwork for your phone, especially. I've seen and worked with REST APIs in the past that have an optional field where you can pass in a list of um, a, a list of of the data that you want back, um, or you can augment what comes back with extra things. Uh, and so, I guess that's identifying this problem, isn't it? That's saying you know some you, you don't always want the same data back every time. So, is it that GraphQL sort of formalizes that approach of of um, allowing the front end to specify what the back end is going to return in, in terms of data. Yeah, exactly. So your query then becomes like how you ask, how you filter, how you grasp for any sort of information from anywhere. Um, I also think it's important to note that we don't have to tear down all of our REST APIs in order to work with GraphQL really successfully. A lot of the most um, kind of successful implementations of GraphQL I've seen out there, it's 
wrappers around REST APIs. And the GraphQL query really gives you a way to think about what data you need. And then maybe some of your data comes from our users and products example. Some of the data comes from REST. Some of it comes from a database. Uh, I guess the sort of familiar scenario is you might um, have an endpoint on your website that returns information about a user um, to display the header. It might give you their username and their avatar, and you call that on every page and and populate the data. Um, But then you find somewhere else in your app you need to display their full name. So you sort of add that to the endpoint and it starts returning that. And then you do your account management section and you need their, their mailing address so that gets returned by that endpoint as well. And before you know it, that endpoint is returning a whole heavy payload that, that costs quite a lot on the back end to, to put together um, and obviously a lot to download. Um, and that's being called on every single page just to show an avatar. So I, I, I guess that's the, the sort of problem that grows over time that was so easy to, to fall into, particularly in big teams, that Graph, GraphQL has just sort of got that it's it's on top of that problem. It knows it knows how to solve that, and it's designed around solving that. Exactly, and yeah, I think the whole idea of a GraphQL schema, I think, is a really it's kind of less talked about than the query language part of GraphQL. But I really feel like the schema in particular gives us this nice type system for our API. So anybody on the team managers, front-end developers, back-end developers, anybody who is really dealing with data can come together, coalesce around which what data we actually want to serve up on this API. And then everyone sort of knows what that source of truth is. They can go build their own parts of the app based on that. So there are some tricky schema management things that come up with that too. But um, as far as like Moving from microservices to um, <laughs> to back to monoliths, we're sort of doing that, um, but getting all of the benefits we like out of m- microservices still. Uh, do I understand correctly that the the typical way of um, of setting up a GraphQL system is that you'd have basically one one route, which is the endpoint that you send all your all your queries to. So you'd, you're not having to, often one of the most difficult things is working out what to name uh, and, you know, what the what the path should be that this particular query should be at. You know, it's returning users and products. Should it be at slash users something or slash products something? And, and so you, with GraphQL, you just have one endpoint that you just fire your queries to and you get back an appropriate response. Exactly. Yeah, it's a single endpoint. I guess <laughs> you still are dealing with problems of naming because you're naming everything in the schema. But um, as far as I feel like a lot of companies who have made big bets on microservices, everyone's like, what endpoints do we have? Where are they? How are they documented? And with GraphQL, we have one place, one kind of dictionary to look up anything that we want to find out about how the API works. So uh, I, I'm I'm very familiar with other query languages like, I mean, SQL is a, an obvious uh, example of a query language that a lot of uh, web developers will know. Uh, and the queries in that take the form of almost like a, a command. It's a text string, isn't it? Select this from that, where, whatever. What format do the do the queries take with GraphQL? Um, it's still a text string, but it doesn't define like where that logic 
comes from. And a lot of the logic is moved back to the server. So the GraphQL server, the GraphQL API is really responsible for saying, go get this data from where it is, filter it based on these parameters. But in the query language, it's very um, it's very field-oriented. So we just add fields for anything that we want to retrieve. Um, we can put filters on those queries, of course, too. But um, I think it's a little less... Um, <laughs> a little less direct about where that information comes from. A lot of the functionality is built into the server. So um, you can you can mix and match in a in a query. You can make a, a request that brings back lots of different types of data in in one request. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, you could send a query for as many fields as your server would allow and uh, bring back all sorts of nested data. But that's really how it works. We connect different types on fields. So I guess we'll recycle our my users and products idea, but uh, the user might have a products field that returns a list of products. All of those are associated with other types as well. So um, as deeply nested as we want the query to go, we can. So does that mean to to retrieve uh, the data for a, a typical view in your web application that might have all sorts of things going on? You can just make one request to the back end and get that all, all in one go without needing to you know, make different queries to different endpoints because it's all just one thing. Yeah, that's exactly the, that's the whole goal is just a single query, define every field that you want and then return it in one response. And the queries are uh, JSON-based, is that right? Um, the query itself is a text string, but it typically returns JSON data. So um, if I have the fields, then my JSON response matches exactly. And so it's really kind of, kind of clear what you're getting when you send that query because the data response looks exactly the same. A lot of the queries, it seems like, are for almost like bare objects, like a, a customer or a product. Is there a way to specify more complex queries where business logic is controlled at the back end? Say, I you know want to get a list of teams uh, for a user, um, but only where that user is an admin of a team and where the team plan hasn't expired and all those sorts of, of, of real constraints that we face in everyday web application development. Can that be achieved with GraphQL? Absolutely. So that's the real exciting, powerful thing about GraphQL is you can move a lot of that logic to the server. If you had a complex query, um, some really specific type of user that you wanted to get, all you'd need to do in the schema is say, uh, get complicated user. And then on the server, there would be a function where you could write all of the logic in whatever language you wanted to. JavaScript is kind of the most popular GraphQL implementation language, but you don't have to use that at all. So Python, Go, uh, C++, whatever you want to use, you can build a GraphQL server with that. But yeah, you can define as complex, uh, as complex a query as you'd like to. And I guess that enables you to um, uh, encapsulate a lot of business logic then in in new types of of objects. Is that is that fair? You you could you know you set up a, a complicated user, um, and then you don't need to think what a complicated user is. You can just keep using that complicated user and know that the business logic is implemented on on that. Is that right? That's exactly right. So I think. This is really nice for front-end folks because they can start to prototype based on that. And then the 
backend team could go implement those functions to make that work. And then there's kind of this shared understanding for what that type actually is and who they are and what are the fields on that type and everything uh, can be handled by like wherever in the stack um, GraphQL is working. And that's why it's not really a front-end or a back-end technology. It's really kind of both and neither. <laughs> it sounds like it's sort of formalizing the the API and the relationship between front-end and back-end. So everybody's getting a predictable interface uh, that, that is standardized. Exactly. Which I guess uh, in organizations where the front-end and the back-end are owned by different teams, which, you know, isn't at all uncommon, um, I guess this approach also enables changes to be made, say, on the front end that might require different data without needing somebody who works on the back end to to make the changes that correspond to that. Um, you've sort of got this almost infinitely customizable API um, without, you know, requiring any work to be done to change it if you need new data. Yeah, exactly right. So is the um, the GraphQL server responsible for formatting the response or do you need to do that in your server-side logic? So the GraphQL server uh, defines two things. It defines the schema itself that lives on the server and then it defines the resolver functions. Those are functions that go get the data from wherever it is. So if I have a REST API that I'm wrapping with GraphQL, the resolver would fetch from that API, transform the data however it needed to be, and then return it to the client in that function. Then the, um, yeah, you can use any sort of database functions you'd like to on that server as well. So if you have data in a bunch of different places, this is a really nice cohesive spot to put all of that data in and to kind of design all the logic around where's that data coming from? How do we want to transform it? The the client says, I want a, a complex user. The the server receives that in a in a query and could say, right, I'm going to look up the complex user resolver. Is that right? Which is a function. Mm -hmm. And then you write your logic, the your backend team or whoever writes logic inside that function to do whatever is necessary to return a complex user. Yeah, exactly. So that that could be that could be that could be calling other APIs, it could be querying a database, it could be looking stuff up in cache or pretty much anything. Pretty much anything. And then as long as that return from the function matches the requirements of the schema, matches like what fields, what types we're returning there, then everything will work nice and harmoniously. I guess it, it it gives you a uh, a consistent response format across your entire API just by default. You don't have to design what that looks like. It, you just you just get a a, a a consistent result. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that could be a, a quite a win, really, because it can be really difficult to maintain consistency across big you know a big range of API endpoints, uh, especially in larger teams, different people working on different things. Um, unless you have quite strict governance in place, it can it can get really complex really quickly, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that schema is just such a nice little document to describe everything. You get the automatic benefit of being able to see all of the fields in that schema whenever you're trying to send queries to it because you can send uh, introspection queries. And there's all sorts of nice tools for that, like graphical and GraphQL playground, little tools that you can use to interact with the API's data, but also the um, 
yeah, if you've ever played around with Postman, like pinging REST APIs, a lot of those, the documentation doesn't really exist or it's tough to find or things like that. GraphQL really gives you that nice cohesive layer to describe everything that might be part of that API. Practically, how do things work on the on the server side? I mean, I guess you need to run a GraphQL service as part of your infrastructure. But what form does that take? Is it an entire server running on its own port or is it just like a library you integrate into your existing Express or Apache or whatever with a, a, a route that resolves to um, that service? Or how, how do you implement it? Yeah, it's an actual server. So uh, kind of the most popular GraphQL implementations are Node.js servers. Um, when GraphQL as a spec was released, it re- the team released this reference implementation in JavaScript, kind of a Node server that served as the guidelines for all these other ones who have popped up. Um, but yeah, you can run these servers on their own instances. You can put them on Lambda. So there's Apollo Server Express, there's Apollo Server Lambda, all sorts of different types of implementations that you can use to actually run this thing. So um, you mentioned briefly before the the concept of a schema that the, the server has. Yeah. That gives you the ability to describe your uh, your types more more strictly than just you know mapping a name to a resolver. There's there's more involved there, is there? Yeah, there's a full language. So I've referenced the spec, and I didn't describe what it is. Um, GraphQL itself is a spec that describes the query language and the schema definition language. Um, so it has its own syntax. It has its own uh, rules for defining these types. When you're using the schema definition language, uh, you basically um, use all of the features of that language to think about, like, what are the types that are part of the API? It's also where you define the queries, the mutations, which are the verbs, like the actions, create account, login, things like that. Um, And even GraphQL subscriptions, which are another cool thing, real-time GraphQL that you can define right there in the schema. Um, so yeah, the schema really is super important. And I think that one it gives us this nice type enforcement across our full stack application because as soon as you start to deviate from those fields and from those types, you start to see errors, which is in that case, good, because you're following the rules of the schema. Is there any crossover between uh, that and, and TypeScript? There, is there a, a sort of synergy between the two there? Absolutely. So we always, when people, if you're a person who talks about GraphQL a lot, sometimes people will tell you that it's bad <laughs> and mm-hmm. will come up to you publicly when you could do that and talk about how GraphQL is no good. But a lot of times they skip out on the cool stuff you get from types. So as far as synergy with TypeScript goes, absolutely. You can auto-generate types for your front-end application using the types from the schema. So that's a huge win because you can not only generate it the first time, which gives you great uh, interoperability with your front-end application, but also as things change, you can regenerate types and then build to reflect those changes. So yeah, I think those things fit really nicely together as types start to be kind of the de facto rule in JavaScript. They fit nicely together. 
It seems to be a, a sort of ongoing theme with the way that TypeScript has been designed, as not TypeScript, sorry, GraphQL has been yeah. uh, designed, that it there's a lot of about formalizing uh, the interaction between the front end and the back end. And it's, it's coming as a, a solution in between that just creates consistency and a, and a formalization of what so far has been otherwise a fairly scrappy experience with REST for a lot of people. Um, one thing that uh, we always have to keep in mind when writing client-side apps is that the code is subject to inspection and potentially modification. Um, and having an API where the client can just request data could be dangerous. You know, if, if you can specify what fields you want, um, you know, maybe that could be dangerous. Uh, where in in the sort of the whole stack would you deal with like the authorization of users and making sure that the business rules around your data are enforced? Yeah, you deal with that all on the server. So that could happen in many different ways. You don't have to use one auth strategy, but your resolvers will handle your authorization. So that could mean wrapping an existing auth REST API, like a service like Auth0 or something you've built on your own. That could mean interacting with a um, with an OAuth like GitHub or Facebook or Google login, those types of things that involves kind of passing tokens back and forth with resolvers. But oftentimes that will be built directly into the schema. So the schema will say, I don't know, we'll create a login mutation. And then I send that mutation with my credentials. And then on the server, all of those credentials are verified. So the client doesn't have to worry so much, maybe a little bit of passing tokens and things like that. But um, most of that is just built into the server. So essentially, that doesn't really change compared to how we're building like REST endpoints at the moment. Um, You know, REST as a technology well, it doesn't really deal with uh, authorization either. And we have middleware and things on the server that that does, deals with it. And it's just the same with GraphQL. You just deal with it. I mean, are, are there any conventions in the GraphQL community um, for, for doing this? Are there like common approaches or, or is it all over the place for how people choose to implement it? It's honestly all over the place. I think most times you'll see folks building auth into the schema. And by that, I mean representing those types and uh, authorized users versus regular users, building those types into the schema itself. Um, But you'll also see a lot of folks using third-party solutions. I mentioned Auth0. A lot of of folks will kind of offload their authorization onto companies who are more focused on it, particularly smaller companies, startups, things like that. Uh, But you'll also see bigger companies starting to create solutions for this. So AWS, Amazon has AppSync, which is their flavor of GraphQL, and uh, they have auth roles built directly into AppSync. And that's kind of cool just to be able to I don't know, not have to worry about all of that stuff or at least provide an interface for working with that. So a lot of these ecosystem tools have, I think authorization is such a big topic in GraphQL. They've they've seen kind of the need, the demand for auth solutions and standard standard approaches to handling off auth on the on the graph. I guess there's there's hardly a, uh, an implementation out there that doesn't need some sort of authorization. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's going to be a, a fairly uh, a common requirement. Um, we're all 
sort of increasingly building componentized applications, particularly when we're using things like uh, React and, and Vue and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the principle of loose coupling leaves us with lots of components that don't necessarily know what else is running on the page around them. Um, is there a danger as, as a result of that? You could end up with lots of components try, you know, querying for the, the same data and making multiple requests. Um, is that or is it, you know, just a, an architectural problem in your app that you need to solve? Are there, are there sort of well-trodden solutions for dealing with that? Well, I think because GraphQL, for the most part, not 100% of the solutions, but almost every GraphQL query is sent over HTTP. So if you want to track down where those multiple requests are happening, it's probably a fairly familiar um problem to folks who are using REST data uh, for their applications. So there are some tools like Apollo Client Dev Tools and Urkel Dev Tools for front-end developers who are like, what's going on? Which queries are on this page? That gives you really clear insights into uh, what's happening. There's kind of several schools of thought with that. Do we create one big, huge query for all of the data for the page? Or do we create smaller queries to load data for different parts of the app? Both, as you might imagine, are um, they have their own drawbacks <laughs> just because if you have a big query, you're waiting for more fields. If you have smaller queries, there may be collisions between what data you're requiring. Um, but I think, and not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I'm there already. So the there's something called the defer directive that's coming to the GraphQL spec. And the defer directive is going to help with um, kind of secondarily loading content. So let's say you have some content at the top of the page, the super important uh, content that you want to load first. If you add that to your query, and then any subsequent fields get the defer directive on that. It's just a little decorator that you would add to a field. That will then say, all right, load the important data first, then hold up and load the second data second. And it kind of gives you this, it's the appearance of kind of streaming data to your front end so that there's perceived performance, there's interactivity, people are seeing data right away versus like waiting for every single field to load for the page, which, um, yeah, it could be a problem. Yeah, I guess that enables you to architect pages where everything that's, you know, we don't like to talk too much about the viewport, but, it, you know, it is the thing, everything above, uh, you know, everything above the fold, yeah. you could prioritize, have that load in and then secondarily load in everything exactly. sort of further down. Yeah. Um, so we, we've talked a lot about querying data. Um, one of the main jobs uh, of an API is sending new and modified data back to the server for persistence. I mean, you, you mentioned briefly mutations earlier. That's the, the terminology that GraphQL uses for, for writing data back to the server? Exactly. So any sort of changes we want to make to the data, anything we want to write back to the server, those are mutations. And those are all just like queries. They're named operations that live on the server. So you can think about what are all the things we want our users to be able to do, represent those with mutations. And then again, on the server, write all the functions that make that stuff work. And is that just as just as simple as as querying for data, calling a mutation, it's just just as easy. Yeah, it's part of the query language. Um, it looks 
pretty much identical. The only difference is, well, I guess queries take in filters. So mutations take in what look like filters in the query itself, but those are responsible for actually changing data. An email and a password might get sent with a mutation and then the server collects that and then uses that to authorize the user. So then, just as before, you're creating a, a resolver on the back end to, to deal with that and to do whatever needs to be done. Um, one common uh, occurrence when writing data is that you want to commit your changes and then re-query to get the sort of current state of it. Does GraphQL have a good workflow for that? Um, it sort of lives in the mutation itself. So I could... A lot of times when creating your schema, you'll create the mutation operation. I'll stick with login, takes in the email and the password, and the mutation itself returns something. So it could return something as simple as a Boolean, this went well or this went badly, or it could return an actual type. So oftentimes you'll see the mutation, like the login mutation, maybe it returns a user. So you get all the information about the user once they're logged in. Or you can create a custom object type that gives you the user plus what time the user logged in and maybe a little more metadata about that transaction in the return object. So again, it's kind of up to you to design that, but that pattern is really baked into GraphQL. This all sounds pretty great, um, but every technical choice involves trade-offs. Um, what what are the downsides of using GraphQL? Where, are there any scenarios where it'd be a really poor choice? I think that the place where GraphQL might struggle is creating a one-to-one map of tabular data. So let's say you have, I don't know, think a database table with all sorts of different fields and, I don't know, thousands of fields on a specific type, things like that. That type of data can be represented nicely with GraphQL, but sometimes when you run a process to generate a schema on that data, you're left with, in a schema, the same problems that you had in the database, which is maybe too much data that goes beyond what the client actually requires. So I think those places, there are potentially uh, problems. I've talked to folks who have auto-generated schemas based on their data, and it's become a million line long schema or something like that. Just thousands and thousands of lines of schema code. And that's where it becomes a little tricky. Like, how useful is this as a human readable (laughs) document? Uh, and yeah, so any sort of situation where you're dealing with a client, it is a really nice fit as far as like modeling every different type of data. It becomes a a little tricky if your data source is too large. So it sounds like anywhere where you're going to carefully curate the, the responses in the fields and, and, and do it more by hand, uh, you can get really really powerful results but um if you're auto generating stuff because you've just got a massive uh, a massive schema then it maybe it's uh, becomes a little unwieldy yeah and i think people are listening and disagreeing with me on that cuz there are good tools for that as well uh but i think kind of the place where graphql really shines is 
that uh, step of abstracting logic to the server, giving front-end developers the freedom to define their components or their front-end's data requirements, and uh, really managing the schema as a team. Is there anything um, sort of built into the query language to deal with uh, pagination of, of results, or is this that down to a custom implementation as needed? Yeah, pagination, uh, you would build first into the schema. So you could define pagination for that. Um, there's there's a lot of guidelines that have sort of emerged in the community. A good example to look at if you're newer to GraphQL or not, <laughs> I look at this all the time, is the GitHub GraphQL API. They do, um, they've basically recreated their API for version four of their public facing API using GraphQL. So that's a good spot to kind of look at how is a actual big company using this at scale? A lot of folks have big APIs running, but they don't make it public to everybody. So um, pagination is built into those that API really nicely. And you can return, I don't know, the first 50 repositories that you've ever created, or um, you can also t- use cursor-based pagination for returning records based on IDs in your data. So cursor-based pagination and kind of positional pagination, like first, last records, that's usually how people approach that, but there's many techniques. Are there any big gotchas we should know going into using GraphQL? I'm about to, you know, say I'm about to deploy a, a, a new GraphQL installation for my organization. We're going to we're going to build all our new API endpoints using GraphQL going forward. What what should I know? Is there anything lurking in the in in the bushes? Lurking in the bushes. Uh always with technology, right? <laughs> right. Um, I think one of the things that isn't built into GraphQL, but can be implemented without too much hassle is API security. So for example, you mentioned like, if I have a huge query, uh, we talked about this with authorization, but it's also scary to open up an API where someone could just send a huge nested query friends of friends, friends of friends, friends of friends, (laughs) down and down the chain. And then you're waiting for, you're basically allowing people to DDoS you (laughs) with these huge queries. So um, there's things that you can set up on the server to limit query depth and query complexity. You can put queries on a safe list. So maybe you're front ends, you know what they all are, and it's not a public API. So you only want to let certain queries uh, come over the wire to you. So I would say before rolling that out, that is definitely a possible gotcha with the GraphQL. You do a lot of instruction and training around GraphQL, um, and you've co-written the O'Reilly Animal book uh, with Alex Banks um, called Learning GraphQL. Um but you've got something new that you're launching early in 2021. Is that right? That's right. So I have been collaborating with Egghead.io to create a full stack GraphQL video course. Um, we're going to build an API and front end for a summer camp. So everything is summer camp <laughs> themed. And uh, yeah, we're just going to get into how to work with Apollo server, Apollo client. We will talk about 
scaling GraphQL APIs with Apollo Federation. We'll talk about authorization strategies and all sorts of different things. So it's just kind of collecting the things that I've learned from teaching over the past, I don't know, three or four years, GraphQL, um, and putting it into one spot. So it's a, a video course that it's, is it all just uh, self-directed? You can just work your way through at your own pace? Yeah, exactly. So um, it, it's a big, hefty course. <laughs> so you can work <laughs> through it at your own pace. Absolutely. Uh, that sounds uh, that sounds really good. And it's uh, at graphqlworkshop.com. Is that right? graphqlworkshop.com. Exactly. And uh, I, I look forward to, to uh, seeing that uh, released because I think that's something that I might need. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've been learning all about GraphQL. What have you been learning about lately, Eve? I've also been looking into Rust lately. So I've been building a lot of Rust Hello Worlds and figuring out what that is. I don't know if I know what that is yet, but I have been having fun tinkering around with it. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Eve, you can find her on Twitter where she's at Eve Porcello. And you can find out about her work at moonhighway.com. Her GraphQL workshop, Discover Your Path Through the GraphQL Wilderness, is coming out early in 2021 and can be found at graphqlworkshop.com. Thanks for joining us today, Eve. Do you have any parting words? Parting words, have fun with GraphQL, take the plunge, you'll enjoy it. And thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Oh,